Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Industries podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we're joined by our new adjunct fellow, Christoph Schumacher. Good to see you, Christoph. Good morning. Good to see you too. We want to talk a little bit about you and what brought you to New Zealand, what brought you to the New Zealand Initiative and what are your research interests. We want to talk a bit about your new research project, but maybe just to start us off, could you introduce yourself? Well, my name is Christoph Schumacher. As the accent might give it away, I, I am German, born in Germany and lived in Germany for about half of my life. I'm currently Professor of Innovation and Economics at Massey University up on the Auckland campus. And yeah, that's probably about it. And you've been in New Zealand for quite a while. Yeah, yeah I've been in New Zealand for about 20, 20 years now. Well, do want to start though is actually with your upbringing in Germany. There are quite a few interesting facts about your life that you told me before, starting actually with your interest in football. I mean, every German is interested in football, but not many have played with Oliver Kahn. Uh, it, it was just in my very younger years, as you said, everybody in Germany starts playing soccer. And I come from a, a little town close to the French border, Karlsruhe. Actually, not that little, 300,000 people. Approximately. A bit like Wellington. A bit like, a bit like Wellington, Small yes, town. yes. Okay. <laughs> and I ended up playing in the same team as a guy called Oliver Kahn. Back then, he was a, already very, very good at his very young age. He's a goalkeeper. He was a nut job back then because when we stopped practicing, his dad came in and was firing balls at the goal and he trained longer, harder. He was yelling at us. I was in, in defense, so I got a lot of abuse for him even when he was 9, 10, 11 years old. And he was uh, like that throughout his career. He later became the national goalkeeper. He, he he did he did I I pretty much stopped playing soccer intensively at, at a young age because I moved to 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 play tennis but he became the first goalkeeper of Karlsruhe which played Bundesliga then he moved to Munich and I think is still the only goalkeeper who got the best player award at the World Cup so and, he and he's currently president of FC Bayern Munich. He he is he is indeed so, but that's about where the my link stopped. That I happened to be abused by him a few times. Fascinating. Uh, so after you've had enough of football, you actually wanted to become a concert pianist. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the other thing. That I, I always wanted. I thought uh, very young. I started playing piano at the age of five when my parents. Mum actually decided, oh, Christoph needs to play piano. So she sent me to to piano lessons, and I, for some reason, really started to enjoy it. And it was actually in when I listened to one of my uncle's records, which was Wilhelm Kempf playing Beethoven C-sharp minor sonata, commonly known as the Moonlight, that I thought, I want to play this piece one day. And while the first movement is known by everybody, the third movement is one of the technically most demanding pieces Beethoven has written. So it took me many, many, many years of, of practice until I finally ended up playing it well enough to, to perform it. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. And so I en enrolled at the Musikhochschule in Karlsruhe after I, I, I finished my, my school years to study music. And as I understand, you also learned the piano because you were bored at school. Ah uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I I thought school was was a bit of a boring thing. I didn't feel sort of challenged enough. And in Germany, it's actually quite good because you start early in the morning, like seven forty-five a.m. is start of school, but you finish at one o'clock. There was no afternoon school at one o'clock. You go home, so that gave you enough time to do the things that you really cared about, rather than having to listen to teachers who tell you what to do and how to do it. 
and then you finished school and as i understand you finished it with the mark of 1.0 which doesn't mean anything to new zealanders but in new zealand terms this would be a multiple a plus or something like that Yes, yes, it was it was it was pretty good. It, it worked out quite well. But then, of course, this allows you to pick whatever you want to study at whichever university you want to study. So it set me up nicely for later on choosing what I wanted to do. And of course, with that kind of background, you would become an economist, but not straight, actually. You, you were more an engineer or some kind of business engineer. What was it actually that you studied? Well, as I've said, I wanted to study music, so I enrolled, but my parents thought, especially my mum thought, this is not the right thing to do. She always said, you can't just believe sitting behind a piano and playing is a job. So they It's insisted. a very German mum. Yes, yes, of course. So <laughs> they insisted for me to study something Useful, proper. yeah. Yeah, proper, as, proper, as, she, okay. as, as she called it. So given my very good uh, school leaver great i was allowed to to pick literally whatever i wanted so i went literally through the list of what was offered in karlsruhe it had to be in in, in karlsruhe because that's where i was enrolled for music and i picked up uh, a degree in industrial engineering that sounds uh, fascinating yeah yeah exactly it's um, i had literally no interest in it but it, it served a purpose that my parents were very happy with it because engineering is a good thing right yeah, yeah. Uh, of course especially in, in germany and i then just made sure i kept the engineering part as low as i could so of course in the first year you have to do sort of your core papers but then specialized in mathematics and physics because math is actually something i, I really really enjoyed doing so i ended up spending seven years to, to do under and postgraduate study in industrial engineering, but focused on on the math side. And in fact, my 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 dissertation thesis at the end was on DNA physical mapping of B cycle DNA strings, and that was purely mathematical based. The idea was if you were to break a DNA string with proteins at certain places, and you know what both end pieces are, what kind of algorithm would you have to write to put it back together to ensure that it's correct? So that if you have a lot of these little pieces, can you build an algorithm that puts it back together with enough accuracy. So I ended up doing this for my, my thesis. That sounds complicated. Now, most people only meet one world star in their lives. You already had Oliver Kahn, but then you ran into Reinhard Selten at the University of Bonn. Now, for our listeners who are not quite familiar with German economists, Reinhard Selten is Germany's only Nobel Prize winning economist. He won the Nobel Prize with John Nash and People would know John Nash because he was actually the beautiful mind from that Hollywood movie. So the two, Nash and Zelton, were co-founders of game theory. And you happened to run into him one day at the University of Bonn. Yes, yes it was, was more or less coincidental, not that in any way I had any appointment of, of such thing. He, he, he was merely introduced to me when I happened to be there. And we had a little chat And I learned about game theory, which I hadn't really known much about before. As in most university classes, it appears in, in your first year 101 economics is the prisoner's dilemma, which 
strictly speaking, is not even a proper game because it is a dominant strategy. So there's no options for players to to, to play much. But anyway, that was about my connection with, with game theory. But after that, I thought, hmm, that sounds actually quite interesting. And I was still sort of looking for a PhD topic. Uh, I thought, yeah, after my main studies, it's about time to, to do a PhD. So that got me thinking. Uh, I started reading around the topic and ended up, yeah, then completing a PhD in in the field of what's called in mathematical economics in and specifically in, in, in game theory. Now we have actually figured out what drove you into economics, this chance encounter with Reinhard Selten. We still haven't figured out what drove you towards New Zealand. That happened very early in, in my life. I, I was an exchange student here for, for a year while I was in high school. I uh, spent a, a year in New Zealand just as I turned 18. Then had to go back to Germany to actually complete my high school and, and do my studies there. But I, I liked New Zealand while I was here. I also had met a very nice girl at uh, at the school uh, while I was here, and one thing led to to another. And after she f- came to to Germany and, and studied there, she eventually said, "I want to go back to New Zealand." And yeah, so you we married your high school sweetheart from New Zealand. I did indeed. Wow. And you're still together? You live in Auckland? You've got children? Yes, yes, we're still together. She still puts up with me. We still live in, in, in Auckland and we have two two boys. Great. Well, thanks for that introduction. I think we got to know you a little bit better. But now we want to talk about your research because you're an economics professor at Messi in Auckland. And for the past eight years, correct me if I'm wrong, you have built up a project that uses machine learning artificial intelligence, on a vast amount of economic data to figure out how the economy is doing. Is that a rough summary of what your project is about? Yes, yes, it's a a, a very good summary of what the project is all about. Shall we just try to explain then how this project works and maybe take our listeners through the project step by step and you can explain the significance of all of the moving parts, if you like. Maybe we start with a very simple question. The project is called GDP Life. I mean, we've all heard the term GDP, but what does it actually mean? GDP sort of gives you a snapshot of the health of your economy. So it's gross uh, domestic product, technically speaking. Exactly. The gross domestic product measures essentially all the economic transactions that happen in an economy that are market-based. And So whenever you pay someone. Exactly. Whenever you pay someone, that, that is actually the, the key insight. Whenever value is added, if you go and clean up your kitchen at home by yourself, it's not part of your GDP. But if you were to pay someone to come to your place and do this for you, then it becomes part of the GDP. So every time a transaction happens that is paid for, then it counts for the GDP. So, so some people simply- have mocked this, actually. Some people have said it measures everything except for the useful things. Absolutely. I think it was even Kennedy who said it measures everything except what makes life worth living for, which was absolutely right in a way. It doesn't measure, for example, well-being uh, of a society. It also doesn't tell us anything about how how good the economy as such works from a, a social perspective. Because if I tell you that in one country GDP per person is higher than in another, then you might think, oh, that's good where, where it's higher. But if these people work three times as much under very poor conditions, then it might not be a good measure to judge how, how, how well people are in a specific economy. But nevertheless, 
it gives us a good snapshot of what is happening in, in the economy. But that's its beauty. It's simple, it's reasonably straightforward, and it somehow correlates with many other things that it does not measure. Like uh, what? For example, well-being and in, in, in prosperity. We also created the New Zealand Shared Prosperity Index, which measures the wealth creation in New Zealand and how it is distributed. And you can almost overlay the index with GDP, the GDP measure. If GDP goes up, people tend to be happier, they seem to be better off, and they share more. When GDP goes down, the first thing people stop is sharing. We find more inequality and people are less happy. So if people now say, well, but we should have more a well-being index or a global happiness index or whatever, I'd suggest for those people to actually look at the correlation between GDP and the measures they propose, and they might find a, such a strong correlation that you might actually think measuring GDP gives me the same kind of insights. Okay, so money doesn't make you happy, but it helps. Exactly this. Um, we are a lot happier when our basic needs are covered and, and protected. And uh, if you have a higher GDP, on average, you would be healthier and better educated and all sorts of other things that we typically think form the good life. Exactly, exactly, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to, to Aristotle and, and the Greeks who came up with the uh, word economist, meaning the manager of, of the household. So, and he, he points out that, yes, what the manager of the household needs to make sure is that, A, you have a roof over your head, food in your belly, but also time to spend with friends, education, the arts, all of these things that come with it. So, yes, if you are a good manager of the household and you ensure there is enough financial needs there to support all the things that make life worth living, then you are a good economist. Okay. So it is important then for government and for, say, the Reserve Bank and for economic commentators to know what the GDP is and perhaps even more important, in which direction the GDP goes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Because it is, and as you said, the GDP has often been criticized But at the end of the day, it's it, it's a measure that is globally used where we can make comparisons and it is still the best way to quickly assess how we are doing as not just an economy, but also as a country and a nation. So who tells us in New Zealand how our GDP is doing? That's the job of, of Statistics New Zealand. They measure GDP, they collect the data. And then they tell us with a six-month delay. <laughs> Why with a six-month delay? That is basically the time it takes for them to collect all the money from the different government agencies, to collate it, to adjust it, to then produce this value. And they only tell us four times a year. Exactly. So it's, it's a, as I always say, funny that uh, your national health check means you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that you were healthy or not so well six months ago, but makes no comment about how well you are right now. So just as an example, Statistics New Zealand measures GDP for January, February and March. And then they will tell us sometime in May or June. Yes. And then but you will find out how the economy did back then. 
Exactly. That's exactly what, what happens. But not only in New Zealand, in pretty much every other country in the world, it's the same. Some countries are a bit quicker. Yep. They only take sort of three months. New Zealand takes a little bit longer, about, about six, up to six months. But uh, no matter where you look in the world, there's always a delay between the GDP and when we are told what it was. And some countries tell you monthly figures as well, I believe. Yes, yes, they do. And, and the US actually gives you quite current updates as well. They try to add a little bit more as the information comes in so you get a better feeling of where we are heading so that when the final GDP is announced, it doesn't come as, as, as a big surprise because you've been able to monitoring during the month sort of where it's heading. So at some stage, you were frustrated with the frequency of updates and the fact that they were not really up to date anyway. And then you thought there must be a better way. Is that what happened? Yes, this is essentially what happened. It all started when I was visiting the University of Chicago, speaking to a few guys there. We thought, ah, oh, it's a good measure still, but how frustrating that we have to wait that long. Our initial idea was, let's uh, let's see how much rubbish is produced. If I could get hold of some of the rubbish collection companies, we could simply correlate more rubbish means more consumption means higher GDP. So that was the initial idea where we talked about on, on my flight back to New Zealand. So yeah, maybe that's what I, uh, I, I could do. Arrived here. And that would have been quite ironic, actually, for all the critics of GDP, you wouldn't measure rubbish to say, exactly. hey, more GDP means more rubbish. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> be surprised, I arrived here and the first company I contacted was Waste Management <laughs> to, to actually see, guys, would you mind sharing your daily collection, the volume of your daily rubbish collection? It is such me? an interesting thought, actually, having an economics professor really going through the rubbish. <laughs> uh, exactly. I, I, think, I think this is in, in this day and age. Being a good economist means to to think outside the box in getting hold of the data you actually need to answer the question. Gone are the days when you have these strict, boring, uh, all econometric models where you put in just some standard indicators. But I think uh, if if you want to know what's going on, you need to be very creative, innovative in in terms of where you get your data from. Right. Anyway, you found that GDP correlates with rubbish or not? I'd never know because waste management didn't come on board. They said, no, we, we won't take part of it. So but that could I, have been the end of the project. That could, <laughs> yeah, that, that could have been the end of the project. And I thought, okay, let's see who will share data with me because data is something very sensitive, something very private to companies. I spent a whole year knocking on many doors and, and nobody wanted to share data with me until finally... I got some bites and companies started to share data with me. And once I hit the first, the second and third came, and it was initially a group of, of Paymike, Worldline, who, who who manages all these F-Post terminals in, in, in shops. It was Kiwi Rail who jumped on board and Port Connect who controls the, the, the ports. And then the NZTA allowed us to use traffic camera insights to use as well. And with that, we started to build up enough live data that we thought, okay, now we can actually start checking whether this data we get daily correlates in some way with GDP. And we really have to stress the daily bit here because you're not getting data after the quarter or half yearly data. You get data from these sources every single day. Yes, yes. And that's why we call it GDP live and not just 
t- GDP uh, because life actually means we get this data every day when it happens, as it happens. And that gives us actually an advantage over the government because we don't have to wait several months to collect this data and then collate it. We do this every single day. So this data that you get, just to give us an idea, how much data do you get and at what time does it arrive? Large quantities, uh, sort of in in, in the three terabyte kind of... Three uh, terabyte. uh, Yeah, yeah. How, How many DVDs is that? I actually have no idea how much this is. All I can tell you is that we have a, a cluster of five servers at university who just deals with GDP Live. They collect the data, we get the data, and then... I think, it, a, I think a DVD was about four or five gigabytes, right? Yes, yes. So you get the equivalent of hundreds of DVDs every yes. night? Yes, yes, we do. Sort of. I think it's 2 a.m. when these data pipelines transmit our, our data to us. And then it, it runs through through the algorithm that we have created to come up with a GDP value that we then publish uh, on our website. So you probably need a very strong computer to even go through this amount of data. Yes, yes, we, we, do, we do that. We have, we have sort of a, a cluster of, of servers that deal with it. Can you give us an idea just how much computing capacity is involved in this? Look, again, that's, I have no idea because that's why I have a good partner in crime, yep. uh, a colleague, Dr. Theo Schuschnack, and he is with the Department of Mathematical and Computational Sciences. And he took care of all that technical stuff that I have very little knowledge about. So you're uh, the algorithm guy and he's the technical guy. He is the computer, the data scientist guy, yes. We, we come up with the ideas and then he converts this and manages that everything runs well on the server. And if something breaks, he is the guy generally who, who knows what to do and how to fix it. So I'm with business school in the economics department and he's with science in, in computational sciences. And together it works very well. Great. So just summary, every night, sometime in the middle of the night, you get the equivalent of hundreds or thousands of DVDs of data. And then you give it to this giant supercomputer hosted somewhere probably at Messi. Yes, yes, it is. And then the computer crunches based on a formula or a software that you developed what the GDP was yesterday. Yes, exactly. And you started this process about, what, five, four or five years ago? Eight, eight years ago is when I came back from the, from the States. But when did you had, have it running? We launched it in December 2018. Mm-hmm. So in, in early 2018, it finally started to work. And Machine learning works that we train these algorithms. So what you do, we have a lot of big data. It went back to, I think, 2010 of our data partners. They gave us this data. And then you actually have the real GDP values back then. So what you do, you chop a year off and you give the uh, algorithm your inputs and you give it the outputs and you tell the algorithm, find me a link between the two. Then you take the next year and only give it the input and said, well, based what you've learned on the previous year, predict my outputs. And then we gave give it the real outputs and say, you made mistakes. Look how silly you are. Learn from your mistakes. And then we give it the next it's year. It's a good thing so- it's a machine. You couldn't do this on a New Zealand employment law easily. <laughs> no, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. But it took it took our algorithm about nine years of training data. So does the machine it- take criticism well? It does unbelievably well. We kick it at times, but uh, on average, it, it, it's, it's doing well. So it took it about nine years before its predictions actually matched the actual values given historic data. So initially, and, when you started this process in 2018, it would have been wildly off. 
by the time we went online, we were pretty confident that it was good because we had been testing it and running it and the learning had been complete. So once we consistently got good results, that's when we decided we can now go online with this and, and release it to the public. But your algorithm is trained, so it automatically tries to get better every time? Yes, it does. And so when you started in 2018, it was probably still not as accurate as it is today, but absolutely, give, absolutely. give us an idea of where is it today, within what percentage range of the actual GDP figures that we only find out months later? We have been unbelievably accurate, even just the last time around, when we predicted the life value on the day, we are normally spot on. The last one was, we predicted, I think, 2% annual growth and the government came back with one9 or so and then we we have been almost almost spot on and you can go on our website and you can actually see because we're honest enough to put our actual values that we predicted still into the graph so you can see how well we are tracking but when the government predicted 1.7 we hit 1.76 percent and the government came out with 1.7 so we have been more accurate than the reserve bank forecasts and then well, that's not hard is it Probably not, <laughs> but also many of the of the commercial banking forecasts. And, and just to get this straight, this is a world first. There's no other country doing it. Yes, it is a world first. It was in 2018 and still is. We don't know of any no other country. No other country has a system like yours. No, no, nobody has. And the, we haven't found any other country who also has a live GDP tracker where you can go online and know exactly what GDP is right now. So... Naively, when you first told me about it, I thought, okay, here's a world first. It is super accurate. It is five months ahead of StatsNZ. You would have people knocking on your door saying, I want to use that system. Can I please have a look at how you do it? Other countries saying, we want to have that system too. The Reserve Bank knocking on your door. We want to get better, recommend better forecasts and we want to have better data for our OCR setting. Did that happen? Did people come knocking on your door and say, this is fantastic, Christoph, please share this with us? Yeah, no, no, not at, not at all. But not at all. Uh, no, not not at all. But there is often a saying that successes are never treasured at home, because when we went online and, and this was made public, we got very positive feedback from overseas. And in fact, the Atlanta Federal Reserve in the US sent someone over to talk to us to figure out how this works, what we are doing. Similar experiences in Germany and in other countries in in Europe, in Asia. It was very interested. We got contacted by by Singapore. And, and some other Asian countries, but nothing happened here in, in New Zealand. Nothing. We went completely sort of under the radar. We then contacted the government and, and the Reserve Bank said, look, this is, is, is what we are doing. And we got sort of the standard responses. Thank you for letting us know. Very interesting, but good luck with it kind of thing. We had contacted States New Zealand, the Reserve Bank and the Grant Robertson, the finance minister, and literally nothing yeah, but the Reserve Bank is in the business of setting interest rates for which they need this kind of data. They should have been um, interested. They they should have. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that they weren't, but we contacted them a couple of times and then eventually gave up and thought, you know what, that's also a chance for us because we are now completely independent of, of any government in, in interference. This is still research for us. So we just provide the number. We made it available to the public. 
whoever wants to use it can use it and we are not driven to perform anything in a way that for example government would like us to do so that's also a chance a bit to put it mildly i find this surprising here you've got a i think almost nobel prize worthy new development in economics and nobody in new zealand at least pays any attention to that but okay anyway so you're running this project now for Four years, it gets better and better all the time. And then you have another idea. You want to add something to it to make it even more relevant to our policy discussions. And that was where the idea of inflation life comes in. So let's do the same again. We, we defined what GDP is. What is inflation then? Inflation just measures the increase in prices for goods based literally on the, the consumer and price index. We put all the things we use on a daily basis basis into a basket we figure out how much they cost today and then next week or next month we put the same goods into the basket and, and figure out how much they cost on that day and the increase in in cost for the same basket that's what we call inflation and the idea is that an economy works well when inflation is limited and that's why we have given the reserve bank a target they should keep it at two percent with a range of you know between one and three but two in the middle that's roughly where you should end up Absolutely, because history has shown that high inflation is never a good thing. We observe countries where they have super high in inflation and things don't go well. If you have traveled through Europe, parts of, I don't know, Spain, Turkey and so on, you see half completed buildings, dead cities where simply projects start because costs are at a certain rate and then inflation drives costs up so much that these things can't be completed. And effectively, know, inflation is a tax on people. Yes, when you buy something, the same thing, the exact same thing suddenly costs a lot more. So yes, it, it feels like the government has just put up GST by a few percent or so. And we know that it's not very good for an economy. And that's a universal understanding because most countries in the world set inflation target of around 2%. So New Zealand is no different to uh, other countries in the OECD. So we want to keep inflation low. And we also need to keep track of inflation. And so just like GDP, it is monitored. Who monitors inflation? Again, I believe inflation is calculated by states New Zealand and should be the key concern of the Reserve Bank because we have policy in place that mandates to, to the Reserve Bank governor of keeping inflation within this band of one and three percent with a long-term target of, of two percent. So if I was the Reserve Bank governor, this is my main concern ultimately. And how often do we get these inflation numbers? It's the same as GDP. We get them four times a year, but they're reported a bit quicker. So for example, we are now mid-November and we know that the last inflation value is end of September quarter. So that's end of Q3, and that was at 7.2%. Right. And the inflation number, of course, is of utmost importance to the Reserve Bank because it can see whether it has done its job, but it also needs the inflation figure to decide on what it needs to do next. Absolutely. The only tool the Reserve Bank really has to control inflation is the official cash rate. What is that? That is... The cost of money, essentially, it, it it sets the price that banks can borrow from the Reserve Bank, which they then pass on to, to clients who want to borrow money. So the OECR plus a profit margin effectively is 
the interest rates bank charged to you. So every time the OCR goes up, you get a letter from the bank saying that your floating interest rate has gone up. And every time that happens and you want to fix your mortgage, it comes at a higher rate. So it's essentially the cost of money in an economy. So just to get that clear, the Reserve Bank would be watching the inflation rate with great interest. And they would set their policies accordingly. So again, you would expect them to be very interested in your project to figure out whether they could get the inflation data quicker than they would usually get it from sets and set. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because in, in simple terms, it's all about supply and, and demand and that determines price, as, as we believe. So when money becomes more expensive, people borrow less. And you probably told the Reserve Bank you're working on this inflation tracker. And actually, not directly, given that they showed very little interest in the GDP line measure. We, we didn't, didn't um, even bother uh, anymore. We, we, we didn't bother anymore. But when the Reserve Bank wants to cool down the economy a bit and, and control inflation, it increases the cost of money, which encourages more saving and less spending, which, which helps to, to control things. So yes, you'd absolutely believe that the Reserve Bank is interested where inflation is, is going and wants to know what inflation is right now and not only what it was three months ago. Okay. So you built Inflation Life now. It builds on the same database you used for GDP Life. How long did it take you to program that additional component? That has probably been a year's work mm -hmm. because we are not only using the same data that we get for GDP Life, but we've added new data series because even so uh, AI often is called a black box, you still want to make sure that the variables you put in have a strong connection with the value you try to, to predict. So with inflation, for example, price indices method, we used bond, government bonds as, as, as a measure of, of how inflation goes, because if inflation goes up, the interest you would demand from a government bond would go up. We used indices on inflation of our main trading partners, because whenever inflation goes up overseas and we import these products, that has an impact on our inflation. We put currency, the strength of the New Zealand dollar in, into the mix, uh, because again, if the New Zealand dollar is weaker, then imported products become more expensive to us. And that, of course, drives prices up. If you buy something from overseas and the New Zealand dollar is strong, it costs a certain amount. But if the New Zealand dollar weakens, the same product will simply cost more again. Right. And the same yep. question again, how accurate is your inflation life tracker? Probably not quite as accurate yet as GDP forecasts are because we've just released the inflation trigger last Thursday. So it hasn't had as much training data and, and process to learn. But we are quite confident that we are at an accuracy level that we are okay telling the public about it. Let's so, say it this way. It will, it will improve over time, just as GDP life did. But we still seem... Yeah, our, our numbers seem to be okay, at least with the training data um, that we had. So it's not quite at the plus minus 0.1%, it's maybe plus minus 0.15. Yes, let, let's say it this way, yeah. But, but, but the key thing is, it gives you an indication where we are heading, because when we heard about 7.2% inflation for end of September, we were also told that that might have been the peak, and we are on a downward trend now. But until you actually know what inflation is today, you have no idea whether that's true or not. We are 
simply flying blind with our, our side. We have now, our tracker says inflation is still gone up a bit. Mm -hmm. We are now more sitting at 7.3%. So what our number shows is that while the increase of inflation is slowing down, slowing down quite well, we still haven't quite reached the peak. So it's more a pattern of plateauing, not so much of a fall yet. Yes, yes, we are slowing down. It's not falling just yet now, at least not based on, on our. Fascinating. Now, I want to talk about the last component of your website, and that was only added in the last few weeks. You have used a formula model developed by a US economist, John B. Taylor, in the 1990s, and it's called the Taylor Rule, named after him. Can you tell us a bit about maybe the rule in general? What what did John Taylor try to do with his rule when he developed it in the 1990s? Well, the idea actually was to propose almost sort of an optimal OCR value for an economy, given the state of the economy at that time. It, it initially went look was looking backward by saying, can we reconcile the current OCRs that we have been seeing with uh, economic performance. So, so I think John Taylor actually tried to explain how central banks did it in the past. He tried to figure out, is there a formula that would tell me why they set the interest rates they did, right? Exactly. That's exactly what, what the initial idea was. But what it tells us now, it, it at least gives us sort of a guideline, sort of an idea of where an OCR should sit if we have a specific inflation target in mind. Okay, so what happened is you would say, okay, I want to achieve 2% inflation. I know my economy is performing well or not so well. I know where the output gap is. I know where my current inflation rate is. And I put all of this information into a formula. And then the formula tells me, hey, and if you really want to reach your inflation target, This is yep. where you should set your OCR. Is that right? Absolutely. That is exactly correct. We use our current inflation rate. We look whether the economy is currently overheating or underperforming. We put in the current OCR we have in place that we thought might control inflation. We put our target rate in there. And the formula tells you then, okay, given all these inputs, the OCR should be so the specific link to your projects, GDP Live and Inflation Live, is that you now have live data for all the inputs you need for the Taylor rule. So exactly. un unlike Stats New Zealand or the Reserve Bank, you wouldn't then use historical data. You could actually take the data as it is today and say, actually, on this day today, based on all the data we have, if I had to make a decision on interest rates right now, this is where it would be. Exactly. That's where the link comes in because we said, hey, now that we have our current inflation data and we managed to pull in other live data sources, we said we, we have everything we need to determine this value. So we thought, okay, let's let's do it. And when you did it, what was the outcome? Eye-watering 7.4% should be our current OCR. That would probably not be politically palatable. But no. then again, that's exactly why we have an independent reserve bank. Yes, yes. And I mean, all this came about with, with discussions with, with you, Oliver, right? We had, uh, it was uh, a last 
minute kind of addition because we said, hey, we have all this, let, let, let's put it together. The question has to be, is this Taylor rule-based OCR something that we should implement with a true value or more an indication of what's going right and what's going wrong? As, as you said, we have a supposedly independent reserve bank, and I believe New Zealand was one of the first countries to actually achieve this. So yes, the OCR should be a lot higher. It also clearly shows that the initial increases came way too late. Yeah, that's the thing I wanted to ask you, actually. Because, I mean, it's very well to say, okay, based on our current data, the OCR should be 7.4% today. But actually, what your data showed us was the big gap between where the Reserve Bank set its official cash rate and where it should have been started opening up in 2021, early 2021. So actually, if they had followed the Taylor rule back then, inflation would have probably not spiked out of control and we wouldn't need these big OCRs now. Absolutely. And I think that's where the real value of this Taylor rule-based OCR comes in. It's actually investigating the gap between the current OCR and that determined value. And our graph clearly shows that quantitative easing stopped way too late, that inflation had already bolted. The OCR didn't catch up at all with it. Then we heard it has something to do with the war on the Ukraine. And again, at that stage, it was way too late. At that stage, we had a gap between the current OCR and that optimal value that was bigger than anything we had seen before. And all of this is very unusual because you also tracked the Taylor rule for the last 20 odd years. And you figured out doing that, that previous Reserve Bank governors had always kept the cash rate somewhere near the Taylor rule value. So somewhere where it should have been within maybe percentage point up or down, but roughly fluctuating around that line where the Taylor rule predicted it. Absolutely. We would track it back, as you said, 20 years. And we have not seen such a gap rapidly in increasing. It's actually, it was not until we created that graph that it became so blatantly obvious that something really wrong is going on right now. And, and the graph, actually, because you also put in the some key dates, of course, the beginning of the Ukraine war, the GFC and so on. But you also noted 10 years of previous Reserve Bank governors. So you can almost see the personalities of the various governors we've had. Absolutely. I mean, again, I wasn't aware. And this is the this is a beauty about data. It just gives you some ideas, values, and then these values don't lie. And then you suddenly realize things you weren't aware of. For example, Graham Wheeler had the OCR right through his entire tenure higher than the Taylor Rule prescription. Which means what? He cooled down the economy maybe unnecessarily. So he was Um, cautious. He was super cautious. Go back to Alan Bollard, and the opposite is true. Until the global financial crisis hit and he was forced to change, his OCR was always lower than uh, the prescribed Taylor rule-based value. Would that mean that Alan Bollard was a bit more of a risk taker in some ways? He was. He, he absolutely was. So Alan Bollard, more of a risk taker. He wanted to stimulate and like the idea of more overheating the economy, whereas Graham Wheeler was exact opposite. He was super cautious and kept the lid on, on things by saying, hey, at least now I make sure in, in, in inflation. is." And where was Don Bresch, by the way? We haven't actually gone back as far because we haven't had the data right, okay. to, to, to Don Bresch. But... And Adrian Orr? 
starting <coughs> off actually quite close to where he should have been. Yes, he, he, he started off conservative, actually, with an OCR that was higher than we needed it mm -hmm. uh, at the time. Which he inherited from Graham Wheeler. Which he inherited from Graham Wheeler, absolutely right. But then, I don't know what happened next. Well, COVID <laughs> but COVID But the wheels came off. <laughs> oh, I don't know what, but yeah, he didn't either see or wanted to see what is actually going on and almost forgot that he has a powerful tool at his disposal to control inflation. So just to get the timing right here, the gap between where the Taylor rule said the OCR should be and where the OCR was, that gap opened up in early 2021. Yes, it did. That started to open up sort of in March 21. And it opened up quite quickly, right? It did, because by June 21, we had already reached the biggest gap we have seen in, in the last 20 odd years. So that was in, in June. At this point, the Reserve Bank was still printing money and billions were put into the economy. Even so, the gap had now reached unseen dimensions. And by the time and Putin invaded Ukraine? Uh, we had pretty much reached uh, an unprecedented uh, difference of 3.7%. Like uh, we, we are talking, we are normally talking differences below a 1% margin. Suddenly it had already reached unseen heights. And, and just think of that. At that point, the current OCR was half of where the Taylor rule said it should, should be. Since then, actually, the gap has only marginally in increased <laughs> yeah but still very the, high yeah but the the, the the jump definitely started in, in in early 21 and by mid 21 we'd already lost sort of that oh, we should probably state that there are sometimes very good reasons for central banks to deviate from the Taylor rule I mean if you've got specific information that your economy is about to fall off a cliff then that might not be reflected in the data just yet but you can see the cliff coming. And therefore, you would yes. set the interest rate somewhere else. However, I'm, the deviation from the Taylor rule that you have demonstrated now in your graphs is not quite like that. It is way bigger than this usual kind of deviation. Absolutely. Something extraordinary is happening. And you said, right, the, the Taylor rule is, is OCR is not your golden bullet that would fix everything. But it is a good indication of where we are we're heading. And as you said, there are other things to, to consider. For example, quite surprisingly, New Zealand fixed rate interest mortgages are quite low. Whereas in, in countries like the US, Germany, the UK, Japan, people have fixed mortgage rates for 15 to 30 years. In New Zealand, your average mortgage has A, a floating component, and B, if it's fixed, two to three years is already considered long, which means a change in OCR has a very, very direct social impact on people probably not being able to meet mortgage payments. Given that the OCR is therefore so important for New Zealand and that central banks used to pay attention to the Taylor rule, not just in New Zealand, but worldwide. Would you say that our Reserve Bank and our governor have taken their eyes off the OCR and off the Taylor rule? Were they missing something in 2021? I guess only the Reserve Bank governor can tell us this. To the outside, it definitely looks like this. If 
he had kept an eye on it and had good reasons not to change it. He should tell us. Some transparency would be absolutely wonderful because at the moment it, it seems to be we don't know why, how. The explanations that were given are unrealistic and are not right. We all know that they were not true. It has nothing to do with, with the war on the Ukraine. Sure, there were supply chain shortages, but that can't be the on, only reason. So to the outside, it, it looks they didn't care. Whether that was because they just dropped the ball or whether there were good reasons, we don't know. But the key thing is we weren't told. Right. Now, looking forward, I mean, when we used to discuss monetary policy and OCR decisions by the Reserve Bank, commentators were often a bit in the dark. It was often a guessing game, a back-of-the-envelope calculation, whether you think the Reserve Bank should have gone further, should have halted, should have maybe declined. But we had no real database. In the future, do you think your tool could actually help economic commentators make more sense of Reserve Bank policies and then say, hey, the Reserve Bank maybe just increased the OCR by 25 basis points. But I mean, look at the Taylor rule gap. It's massive. Why don't they consider that? Do you think it would help us actually comment better on Reserve Bank policy? Absolutely. I mean, almost I see this as the second best. The best option would be for the Reserve Bank, for example, to have a live tracker themselves. So we know what they use to base their decisions on and what they are that doing. That would make it predictable and transparent. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That may, and we all know more information is better than less information. We optimize decision-making the more information we have at our disposal and the less uncertainty there is. So in an ideal world, we would have the Reserve Bank to produce a dashboard with these key indicators that we can follow and then anticipate and understand better what's going on. Of course, this is not happening and not likely to happen. So the next best thing is, for us to produce more and more of these values, make them available, and then commentators, the general public, business people, politicians, and politicians could have a better view of what is, is, is going on. But ultimately, the key goal should be to work together to make this available for New Zealand and not just in um, economics, but in other areas as well. I I recently was part of a grant application where we wanted to put a live tracker on land productivity in based on rainfall, condensation of water to understand better how the land is performing on water, melting on glaciers in New Zealand to measure live what water levels are. And all this could form pieces of a big puzzle that is New Zealand. Okay, so where to from here? You've developed this model. The model is now learning. It's getting better all the time. It can really help improve our policy discussions. It could probably help the Reserve Bank make better decisions in the future. And back to the question we had earlier, there's obvious value in what you do. It has so many different uses, your model. And yet, from what I understand, the finances of the model are a bit shaky. <laughs> that's that's mildly put a, a, a bit shaky so first of all yes gdp live is used because since we went live we had now for 5.4 million page views which is massive uh, for an academic project 
for an economic project, absolutely outstanding. And we were thrilled with it. Since we went live with the inflation tracker, we have seen page view numbers that we hadn't reached before. So we are now having thousands of page views every day. So we know it has it is used and it's valued, which is absolutely fantastic. But there's also a reality there that the project was funded by Messi University through a, a big research grant I, I got to, to the tune of, of $1.25 million for the time. But that is coming to an end this year. Actually, it's coming to an end next month. And as it stands as such, if I don't find external financial support, we won't have the money to keep this going. But just to be clear, you don't need millions of dollars now to keep it alive. No, no. But we would probably need somewhere in a total of $120,000 a year to make it viable. We need at least $60,000 to just pay our hosting fees, the technical costs. Well, this is all money that people get to build the pipelines, to monitor them, to host the website, all this thing. This is just the base cost. But in terms of the contribution we make, this is peanuts, really, because the main work has been done. This is now just talking about maintaining it and keeping it on the air. So we're talking about roughly $120,000. Yeah. At a time when the Reserve Bank has gone from 280 full-time staff five years ago to, I believe, 450 today, and they would have probably earned a bit more than $120,000. Absolutely. I think given what the tool can do, it's, it's, it's cheap labor. It's minimum wage. Well, since the Reserve Bank doesn't show any interest and since Stats New Zealand doesn't either, you need private funding. You need some help. How can people get in touch with you if they want to support this? Go on to gdplive.net, have a look at the site, and at the bottom, uh, you find my contact details, also a short description. There's an email, there's a phone number. Call me, email me, find a way, and then let me know, and we'll we'll get in, get and, in touch with you. Again, just to make this clear, you are not looking for people to buy the project and commercialize it. You're looking for essentially philanthropic support because you want to have this data out there in the open and you want to have it available for all New Zealanders and all New Zealand policy institutions and policymakers. Absolutely. This is a key idea of us. We want to give something back to New Zealand. So this is a free website. This is also part of the motivation of our data partners to freely share their data with us, which is a fantastic thing. It's not a given that companies every day share their data with you. The key motivation is to be freely available to everyone. Private people, business people, politicians, whoever wants to see it here in New Zealand, overseas, go and look at it. So I'm not looking for any money to, to buy into this but simply so that we can cover our cost to keep it up up and running. That's really is, uh, we are just trying to cover our, our cost for, for running this thing. Well, I wish you all the best for that project and for your fundraising activities. I must say, Christopher, it was a fascinating conversation, starting with playing football with Oliver Kahn, running into <laughs> a German Nobel Prize winning economist, and ending up in New Zealand developing a world-first system for GDP and inflation tracking. Absolutely fascinating. We're so glad to have you in New Zealand. We're so glad to have this project at Messi. And we are very glad and fortunate to have you as an adjunct fellow at the initiative. So for all of that, thank you very much.
Oh, absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I uh, appreciate all the, the trust and the support you guys have shown us and, and to give me a sort of a platform to help publicize this. Unfortunately, New Zealand universities are unbelievably poor in connecting with the community and connecting with businesses. So any support we can get, we really appreciate. So, And it's, it's always fun talking to a fellow German. I hope the listeners get used to the German accents that uh, are present in the, in the room. Uh, we're trying to do our best, but I guess we won't ever, ever lose that. Well, then let us finish in a way that lets us get rid of our accents. Herzlichen Dank, es hat mich sehr gefreut und ich wünsche dir alles Gute für dein weiteres Projekt. Gerne, vielen Dank. Tschüss. Tschüss.